Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson and today I'm talking with Associate Professor Jeffrey Kempel. Dr. Jeffrey Kempel is the Division Chief of Paediatric Otolaryngology at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles and an Associate Professor at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. His Paediatric Fellowship was under the direction of Lauren Hollinger, at the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. He is one of America's leading experts in paediatric otolaryngology, in particular in relation to tonsillectomy, but has published and presented widely within the field. One of those publications, being on thoroglossal duct cyst, published in 2013 in the International Journal of Paediatric Otolaryngology, and again then in the November edition of the International Journal of Paediatric Otolaryngology 2014, on the management of thyroglossal duct remnant surgery, and it's my pleasure to talk with him today. How are you, Prof? Thank you, uh, Dr. Justin. Thank you so much for, for having me. To begin with, what is a thyroglossal duct cyst, and, and how common is it? Yes, the thyroid gland actually starts, it appears, at about the third week of gestation in the embryo. It begins as a diverticulum in what, what would be the primitive pharynx, eventually the tongue. Now, it descends into the neck by about week 7 to 10 of gestation uh, to lie in the normal anatomic position that we know of, which is just anterior to the trachea, about a centimeter or so inferior to the cricoid, uh, cricoid cartilage. Now, anywhere along that line from the base of tongue to the thyroid gland, the duct uh, generally disintegrates over time, but sometimes a portion of that tract uh, will remain behind as a potential space. And this is what we mean by Thyroglossal, thyro for the thyroid, glossal for the tongue, duct for the passageway. And when those potential spaces fill with fluid, we call that a cyst. So that's your thyroglossal duct cyst. And then sometimes uh, this duct will then become a part of the anterior portion of the neck skin, in which case you'll have a sinus tract. So then we have a thyroglossal duct sinus. Given the difficulty in pronouncing those words altogether, uh, duct and sinus, my preference is to use the term thyroglossal duct remnant, which would describe both the cyst and the sinus component. And how common is this condition or this, this entity? Yes, the uh, most textbooks, most speakers would say that this is the most common congenital uh, abnormality or mass found in children. I haven't been able to see any sign of uh, a percentage of incidence but I will tell you that we reviewed our experience, our institution, which is a major center in Los Angeles over 20 years, and we saw 130 patients uh, in that 20-year period. Is it associated with any particular conditions? Well, in particular, there's two things that we do uh, worry about or are concerned about, and first is that of recurrent infections, and the second is in some very rare circumstances, uh, one can have the additional finding of a papillary thyroid carcinoma. And it's for these two reasons that we often recommend surgery for this problem. And is there an age that they typically present at? Yes, the thyroglossal duct cyst or sinus or the thyroglossal duct remnant can actually appear at any age. Uh, again, in our review of the 130 patients over 20 years, the age range was as young as two months of age and as old as 14 years. But there have been reports in the adult literature uh, that this can present at any time, even into the 40s and 50s. So when you have someone who presents uh, to you with what you think may be a thyroglossal uh, duct remnant, what 
do you want to know from their history? Well, I think uh, the history really is not uh, – there's nothing really unique in the history compared to any other neck mass. You would want to mm. know the usual questions such as who first noticed it, how, how big was it at that time, has it grown over time. These are usual questions we would ask about a neck mass, but in particular, we would want to ask about the number of repeated infections if they do exist, and what is the interval in between these infections, because when we think about a time for surgery, we might want to use this information to plan a date for surgery. What about the physical examination? Are there key things that you will look for uh, to help maybe confirm or refute the diagnosis? Well, there are two items I can think of. One is, does the skin move easily or not over the mass. If the, if the skin does not move easily over the mass, then uh, one might think about a dermoid cyst rather than a thylacid duct remnant or cyst, although this is not uh, 100% accurate. Second of all, I just want to emphasize the fact that it's not easy at all to tell on physical exam the difference between a cystic structure and a solid structure, structure especially when these masses are small, say less than one and a half centimeters in size. What are the key differentials that you're thinking about when uh, a patient presents to you with, a, with a, a neck lump? I would say the most common entity that we'll see aside from the thylacid duct remnant is a dermoid cyst. Uh, secondly, we might see a lymph node. And then even more rarely, we might see a uh, laryngocele or a saccular cyst. So then you have uh, this this patient, you think you're dealing with a thyroglossoduct remnant, what investigations would you routinely organize, and, and does it vary depending on the age of the patient? No, uh, we singularly choose the ultrasound of the thyroid, and I just need to emphasize that at least at our institution, we want to say ultrasound thyroid, not ultrasound neck. At our mm. institution, if we ask for an ultrasound of the neck, the radiologist will examine carefully the mass and they will not actually look at the thyroid gland. When we ask for the ultrasound of the thyroid, they will specifically look for the thyroid gland because we want to make sure before we operate on this child or this patient that the thyroid gland is in its normal anatomic position. In some very rare cases, the thyroid remnant may contain all of the thyroid tissue in the patient. As an aside, if that is the case, what's the management in that, in that scenario? Well, in the scenario where you have an ultrasound of the thyroid that shows no thyroid tissue where it's supposed to be, one would then assume that uh, if there is any thyroid tissue in the patient, that it may very well be in this mass. Now, the management is still the same. The management is still to excise the mass in its entirety with a cyst trunk procedure, but then one has to be prepared uh, for the patient and for the parents of the patient that they may require uh, medication afterwards, such as thyroid replacement. Speaking of thyroid replacement, is there any role for thyroid function testing uh, preoperatively? No, I know of none. Uh, we don't ask for any uh, any medical tests uh, at a time, including any blood tests, such as thyroid, thyroid function tests. Uh, the only test that we ask for is the ultrasound of the thyroid. So you've got your diagnosis. You're happy you're dealing with a thyroid duct remnant. Um, how then do you manage these patients? Well, the surgery that we perform is what we call a modified cyst trunk procedure. So what, what I mean by that is that cyst trunk described uh, his procedure first in 1920, and in that article he actually described routinely removing not only the mass, the tract or the cyst, 
but center portion of the hyoid bone as well, in addition to tissue above the hyoid bone, but even going through the tongue base into the pharynx. Uh, that's what I call the classic cyst trunk procedure. But eight years later, in 1928, he published a second paper where he recommended that one uh, continue to remove tissue above the hyoid bone, but one does not need to enter into the pharynx unless the tissue uh, dictates. So that's what we call a modified cyst trunk procedure, and that's our procedure of choice for most patients. When consenting the, the, the patient or the parents for this, are there any uh, key risks that you need to inform them about in relation to this surgery? Well, the most common problem that we see after surgery, which is not very common, but the most common we do see is a wound infection or a seroma. And these are easily managed after surgery. Uh, the other uh, complication that we are concerned about is that of recurrence. Would you mind guiding me through your key operative steps when it comes to performing your modified cyst trunks? Yes. So uh, if, I, if, I don't, if you don't mind, I can spend maybe some time just describing why the suprahyoid region is so important. Please. Uh, first, uh, rather than a single tract, there are often multiple ducts. Second of all, rather than uh, even, even with these multiple ducts, one can have what we call arborization. That is that the, there can be little outpouchings that looks very much like branches on a tree. Now, the presence of these multiple ducts and the outpouchings are all microscopic. That is that this is tissue that one cannot see or palpate at the time of surgery. So for this reason, it's very important that the surgeon remove tissue superior to the hyoid bone. But again, because this tissue is microscopic, the, the most important question to the surgeon is how much tissue do you remove? Now, Sistrunk himself re did recognize this problem, and he did describe a very detailed approach to the suprahyoid area. He specifically stated that one should remove three millimeters of tissue extending from the hyoid bone to the base of tongue, and he further stated that this should be done at a 45-degree angle to the base of tongue. Now, the problem is, while this is a very detailed approach, the three millimeter tissue and the 45 degree angle, both of those components are very difficult to reliably reproduce. And uh, I wrote this article then in November, which was published in November issue of International Journal of Pediatric Otorhinolaryngology uh, to help the surgeon in training and the inexperienced thoracolosal duct surgeon to reliably use an approach that will identify for the surgeon the borders of resection of tissue in the suprahyoid area. So uh, briefly, uh, I can refer the listener to that article because there's a number of photographs there which are key to understanding this approach, but briefly let me try to describe it in words. The most important step is that the center portion of the hyoid should be, should be freed uh, completely before approaching or excising any tissue superior to the hyoid bone. And the reason for that is that since these other tissues are microscopic and one can't see them, if one tries to remove tissue superior to the hyoid before they uh, free the center portion of the hyoid, one can actually uh, maybe transect some of this tissue and thereby leave some of that tissue behind. So it's very important to first uh, remove the center portion of the hyoid before one approaches the tissue superior to the hyoid bone. The next important step is that one should very slowly 
and very carefully, but importantly, very slowly transect the muscle fibers that are in a superior to inferior direction from the hyobone extending superiorly to the tongue base. And when one does that, eventually one will see that there is a change in the tissue from the striated muscle going superior to inferior to a smooth glistening layer. Now at this time, unfortunately, I'm not able to state exactly what this tissue layer represents. It most likely represents transection of the mylohyoid muscle and most likely the uh, geniohyoid muscle. It may very well represent the plane between the geniohyoid muscle and the genioglossus muscle. But again, the key is to identify the smooth and glistening layer. And once the surgeon has done this, the surgeon has identified for him or herself the anterior and lateral borders of resection of tissue superior to the hyoid. Now, the third step and the final step in this is that I take a one centimeter, roughly one centimeter area of tongue base, and I, I try to excise that area looking very carefully for any sign of any mucinous material. If at that time I do see any mucinous material, this is a sign to me that there is microscopic disease that I did not appreciate, and I simply take out a wider section of uh, tongue-based musculature. And in doing so, it is rarely necessary to go through the tongue-based uh, tissue into the mouth, and only the disease will dictate how far or how deep the surgeon has to go. At the end of your operation, once you're happy uh, that the specimen is out, um, do you uh, routinely leave a drain? Yes, well, the, with the uh, tongue base intact, most often I place two sutures at the tongue base. One is a figure of eight, and then a second layer is a running suture. Uh, I do not try or make any attempt to reapproximate the ends of the hyobone. I leave them separated. And then I actually use a rubber band drain uh, most commonly uh, after surgery. So this is, a, this is a rubber band that's left intact, and it's brought through either end of the wound. And uh, are there specific post-op instructions? Yes. Yeah, so uh, almost always uh, I do this procedure as a same-day or outpatient surgery. Uh, the only time I ask the patients to stay in the hospital or recommend they stay in the hospital is when I have made an entry into the uh, pharynx, in which case then instead of using a rubber band drain, I will use a, a quarter-inch Penrose drain in the center of the wound. Mm. I will usually see the patients back the next day in the office where we'll remove the dressing, we'll remove the rubber band, and then we'll simply counsel the, the parents to use a topical antibiotic ointment, which is found over-the-counter for the next four days, and then a light activity for about 10 days. Do you routinely give uh, oral antibiotics? No. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't give antibiotics either intraoperatively, intravenously, or postoperatively by mouth. Does that change if you feel that you might have opened the pharynx? Uh, if I enter into the pharynx, then I would ask the anesthesiologist to use uh, intravenous clindamycin, and I would use that uh, for the length of time of the hospital stay, which would be typically uh, 24 hours, and then the patient will be discharged home without antibiotics. So then, let's talk on about uh, failures or, or um, recurrence. Um, how do they usually present, and how do you approach them? Yes, so typically uh, the patients will present early on in their postoperative course. Uh, early on, I mean more than, say, two months from the day of surgery, 
but certainly less than six months. Now, if one looks at the literature, one will find uh, reports of recurrences as far out as even a decade later. Uh, but this really is not our experience. Our experience is that if the tissue uh, is left behind, that one will typically see recurrence in under six months. Uh, but stating that, though, having said that, uh, if one sees a mass uh, immediately following surgery, then that most likely represents a seroma or a hematoma. And I just simply observe those. And those will typically be resorbed on their own within the period of time of about four weeks. With the the recurrences, <clears throat> excuse me, presumably it relates to that uh, arborization and extension of tracts. Is it simply a matter then of going back in and doing a wider resection in that superhyoid area? Well, I would say that uh, recurrence, without a doubt, uh, simply put, means that disease is left behind. And then the issue is, where was the disease left behind? And we can look at three specific areas uh, where there might have been cause for failure. Uh, one surgeon, Ben Harley, who's at Great Ormond Street, talks about an extended cyst trunk procedure. And in fact, routinely, he begins his cyst trunk procedure at the isthmus of the thyroid. And he feels that in many cases, uh, tissue has been left behind as inferior or located inferiorly as low as inferiorly as the isthmus of the thyroid. Uh, the second most common area, probably, or second common area, uh, is at the level of the higher bone. And we've known as early as 1954 that the tract often uh, is found anterior to the higher bone, but then, for reasons not clear, actually extends posterior to the higher bone before it then further descends in the neck. And it's for that reason it's very important to re completely remove the one-centimeter center portion of the higher bone. And in some cases, we think that some surgeons will actually scoop the higher bone in the center rather than a complete transection. Uh, so it's very important that one visually, uh, by visual inspection and by palpation, confirm at the time of the first surgery that the entire center of the higher bone uh, has been removed. And then the third part, and this is probably the part that is most important, at least in my opinion, is that, again, it's these microscopic uh, tracks and arborization that exists above the higher bone uh, where we where we likely see failure. Well, thank you very much. I think that's uh, it's been a, a, a clear and comprehensive discussion on the topic. Um, I'd like to now finish with the final word. The final word, as you know, is an opportunity to either uh, cover something that we haven't talked about during the discussion of this interview or to reiterate a fact that you think is uh, particularly relevant to any discussion on this topic. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. Right. So just a few points. Uh, first of all, for any midline or near midline mass, a thyroseduct remnant must be in the differential diagnosis. Second of all, I would say the surgeon should plan for a cyst trunk procedure and should also prepare the parents and the patient for this surgery. And then third, the surgeon's best chance for success, in my opinion, is to always be cognizant of the borders of uh, resection with this tissue. And by that, I mean one might consider beginning their dissection, as Dr. Hartley mentions, as inferior as a thyroid isthmus. Uh, one would certainly uh, use the posterior border of uh, resection as the fascia overlying the laryngotracheal complex. 
the lateral borders of resection would be the strap musculature, even taking several millimeters of the strap muscles as one uh, takes the dissection superiorly. Thirdly, one should then confirm, as I said, both on visual inspection and palpation, complete removal of the one centimeter center portion of the hyoid. And then lastly, with respect to the suprahyoid area, I would encourage uh, surgeons to uh, take a look at the procedure that I described uh, in this uh, publication that we spoke of, which clearly defines for the surgeon the anterior and lateral borders of resection uh, in this area. With this particular approach, uh, I've used since uh, 2003. I've had 74 procedures over that time with uh, zero uh, percent recurrence over that period of time in that many cases. And with that, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Jefferson, for allowing me to participate uh, in this conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Kemble. Um, you can find this and other podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can always find us at the website at entexpertopinion.com. Thanks very much. Thank you.